0: This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com.
1: I want to talk about something that uh, I talked about already on my blog, and I'm going to shamelessly recycle that. So anybody who reads it can just, you know, skip on to listening to In Our Time. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, start off by uh, reading from uh, the Odyssey. I was driven thence by foul winds for a space of nine days upon the sea. But on the 10th day, we reached the land of the lotus eaters, who live on a food that comes from a kind of flower. Here we landed to take in fresh water, and our crews got their midday meal on the shore near the ships. When they had eaten and drunk, I sent two of my company to see what manner of men the people of the place might be. And they had a third man under them. They started at once and went out amongst the lotus eaters who did them no harm but gave them their eat of the lotus which was so delicious that those who ate of it left off caring about home and did not even want to go back and say what had happened to them but were for staying and munching lotus with the lotus eaters without thinking further of their return. Nevertheless, though they wept bitterly, I forced them back to the ships and made them fast under the benches. Then I told the rest to go on board at once lest any of them should taste of the lotus and leave off wanting to get home. So they took their place and smote the gray sea with their oars. Hmm. All right. So uh, that that little passage from uh, the Odyssey, uh, you know, I I thought of that when I read um, uh, Dreamland about Uh a year ago. And uh, it's an absolutely fantastic book. um, And I highly recommend it to any sociologist um whether or not you do criminal justice or drugs or anything like that i don't do any of that stuff and i thought it was you mean when you say do drugs um, do you
2: mean like research it
1: well yeah, <laughs> yeah, well yeah that's right i mean if you uh if, if you're actually doing drugs yeah so yeah i mean even if you're not a
0: specialist in drugs um,
1: can you Can you just
0: give us a quick intro to the book just so –
1: Yeah, sure. So it's by a journalist, uh, Sam Quinones, um, on the opiate epidemic. And it kind of tells two stories. So one of the stories is the medical story of the pain revolution where in the early 1990s – well, picking up – starting in the 80s but really picking up in the 1990s, uh medicine abandoned its traditional taboos on prescribing opiates. Um traditionally doctors had always been afraid to prescribe opiates because they knew they were addictive, or at least they had been since the earlier opiate epidemic of like, you know, patent medicine uh around the in the Victorian era, or maybe a little later around the turn of the century, uh, you know, when you had like patent medicine that was really just laudanum and that sort of thing, and you ended up having all these people getting addicted to patent medicine. Uh, so between that and the early 90s you had doctors being very reluctant to prescribe opiates and uh basically if you were in pain well then you were just in pain and pretty much if it was say 1970 pretty much the only way you were getting opiates from a physician is if you were in surgery or recovering from surgery but basically nobody got opiates outpatient and they were very tightly controlled inpatient And then you had the pain revolution where they became convinced that pain was a serious problem and it could be treated by medicine Mm -hmm. and uh you also saw the development of a new class of opiates that were theoretically less addictive because the way addiction works in the brain is addiction is fundamentally a learning disorder where uh the brain learns when it has an unexpectedly pleasurable or for that matter unexpectedly harsh stimulus uh it's it it really uh, psychologists call this the error prediction model of learning that, you know, if you if you don't expect something to be so wonderful, then you you, your brain really learns to do it again. Uh, So the worst thing that can ever happen to you is that the you win the first time you gamble, you know, right? uh, If if you lose the first time you gamble, you're not gonna you're not gonna like gambling. And if you win the first time you gamble, you're gonna, you know, like it, which is not a good uh, habit to develop.
2: Mm.
1: Anyway. um, And so if you have a opiate that releases into the bloodstream slowly, that should make it less addictive. Not mm-hmm. in the sense that your body will stop, your body will still stop producing endorphins naturally, but it's not gonna have the learning process. Um, so it, it'll, it might still be physiologically addictive, but it's not gonna be mentally addictive in the same way. This also, by the way, is why cocaine is so addictive because uh, cocaine directly stimulates dopamine. Uh, hmm. and and your body absorbs it very rapidly. Um, Anyway, but if you had drugs like OxyContin where you take the pill and it it has basically a time-release coating, so it very slowly releases into your blood, um, in theory, that should be less addictive than just taking the equivalent dose of just straight morphine or oxycodone. Um, But it turned out that that was not true and people got addicted to Oxy anyway. So that's one of the two stories. Um, the story of kind of the pharmaceutical slash medical revolution in opiates. And then the other story is um, about black tar heroin, especially coming out of the city of well, – not city, the village of Jalisco, um, which is spelled with an X, unlike the state um, – in the state of Nayarit. Uh, this is such a tiny, inconsequential place that I've driven through Nayarit, and I totally forgot it. Where, what remember. country is that? Where is that? It's in Mexico. I believe it's between okay. Sinaloa and Jalisco. Um, All right. But it's on the Pacific coast of Mexico, like two or three states down from the U.S. border. Okay. Um, or maybe three or four states down from the U.S. border. So it's this tiny little village, and um, people they're near the village, grow poppies. And then in the village, they cook them down to black tar and they, they have like a return migration model where all the young men from this village, uh, illegally migrate to the United States, um, basically sleep on the floor in an overcrowded apartment for six months and work 12 hour days driving around with cell phones. And, a half a dozen balloons of black tar in their mouth that you call the cell phone number and you meet at a prearranged drop off point or they're even home deliver it and they sell you a balloon of black tar for five or $10. So it's an incredibly, it's it's very high quality heroin. And um, I mean, it's not China white good, but it's, it's less diluted than um, heroin was traditionally. And it's very cheap, especially with the quality adjusted price. And more important than that, the customer service is excellent. You don't have to go to some corner boy, you know, mm-hmm. who's going to be kind of mean to you and go to the sketchy part. They will actually deliver it, even to your house. And right. uh, junkies who Quinone's uh, interviewed, talked about how it was so much nicer buying from these uh, polite Mexicans than it had been from buying from traditional drug dealers. And, uh, you know, there's some advantages, even from a public perspective. These guys, as a rule, are not violent. Uh, Uh They don't get into turf wars in part because they don't have corners to protect. Um, But, uh, you know, it has the general pattern that you have if you take these two storylines together is people get hooked on pills and then they eventually can't afford the pills and they switch to black tar. And the story that he doesn't tell is that since he wrote the book, um, there's been an influx of fentanyl and um, people, which is a form of synthetic heroin. And people have been taking the fentanyl and overdosing. Mm -hmm. And so we have this massive number of overdoses. Um, I believe the figure I heard, so there's two statistics. One is that we now have more people dying of opiate overdoses than dying in car accidents. Mm -hmm. And the other is Certain
0: demographics
1: or overall? uh, Overall, but it's especially prevalent among middle-aged, non-college educated white people.
0: Huh. Well that's that Angus related to that Angus Deaton finding.
1: Yeah. So you can basically read this as an ethnography of Case and Deaton. Okay. You know, okay. Um, it's it's like a qualitative version of uh, Case Deaton.
0: So what did um, you what did you get from the what was the big what were the big insights from uh, from the book that sort of really stuck with you?
1: Well, so one is um, what motivates these uh these drug dealers to come up from their village and spend, you know, six months and you know working extremely hard, uh, you know, at a fairly high risk of arrest, and um, you know, it's saving all their money is that they get to come home and be a big shot. Mm-hmm. And so, what these guys will traditionally do, or at least they did at the time, it's probably slightly different now, is they would accumulate five hundred one levi's. Because um, these guys started in the nineties when five oh ones were fashionable. Maybe right, today right. they'd collect <laughs> skinny jeans or something. But right. um, they would collect five oh ones, mostly the junkies shoplifted from Miller's Outpost or Sears or something. Right. And then um, and they would like have suitcases full of five oh ones and you know, thousands of dollars. And they would come home at the end of their, you know, tour of duty, living in some tiny apartment. Uh, very often at the Village Corn Festival, the Ferro de Alote, Lo- de which just means mm. corn festival. Um, and they would uh, distribute jeans to everybody. You know, everybody they knew would get a pair of blue jeans. And, uh, and then they would also like, you know, hire a band to perform at the festival and basically throw a big party. And, uh, and then they would, you know, hang out at a strip club for a couple of weeks uh, doing cocaine until all their money was gone. And then they'd have to go back up. And I was thinking, and he points out that um, in doing this, you would make yourself the object of other men's envy, and mm-hmm. that in um, and, and that you would almost be ashamed to not be able to throw a party and not be able to give everyone else blue, blue jeans because that became the standard. And I was thinking, "Oh my God, this is a potlatch, yeah. right?
2: Exactly. You have this periodic exactly.
1: feasting and distribution of gifts, um, and so it's a, you know it's at the other end of the income scale and you know social privilege and all that than Ashley's talking about but it's the same damn thing and for that matter the same as like Mouse is talking about um so the you know these bottle service with uh you know uh Wall Street douchebags and um Jean you know these, parties yeah, in the corn festival yeah yeah and handing out bloom jeans <laughs> at the corn festival for these um you know these Mexican uh peasants turned drug mm-hmm. dealers it's exactly the same issue
0: you know what? It makes me think about is just how easy it is to rile up young men. Young men in that way, like uh, it's just a, like you'll, you can get them to deal drugs, you can get them to work round the clock. Yeah. You know, making rich people richer, but giving a a, a young person the opportunity to strut—it's just amazing mm-hmm. to me. I, I mean, I don't even know. That's probably. Ridiculous thought that all. Yeah.
2: No, it's it. not. It's not ridiculous. You know, the one thing that's ridiculous about it, Joe, is you make yourself sound like you're some kind of like grandpa. <laughs>
0: Come
2: on, guy, I, I, you're not that old. I, Joe. I was
0: never that young. I was yeah. born for senior citizenship. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case it, yeah, it's yeah. interesting for me that that whole epidemic just it, it blows my mind uh i know doctors who were practicing at that time so i think i saw a frontline documentary on it that was also wonderful and uh, pbs frontline uh it's a show i love and uh they were almost shamed at the time into giving uh Giving their patients opioids. Like to not give your patients opioids was a marker of being inhumane and mm-hmm. not caring about people's suffering. That's right. And it, and it was, but it was an influence campaign that was largely manufactured by those who wanted to sell the drugs like it was it was a a, it was a bootlegger baptist coalition so economists have this model where
1: you have sincere ideologically committed activists pushing an issue and then Uh there's also you know somebody who has a pecuniary interest in it and very often the way these things work is that the person who has a financial stake rather than just saying oh prescribe these drugs because i'm the one who's selling them Mm-hmm. They will kind of ally with and even fund the ideological people to, you know, kind of work in concert with them. So you yes. have both the ideal, you have the idealists and you have the cynics cooperating together um, to produce this. And that you know there were doctors who were very sincerely committed to the idea that pain is a serious problem, and that you know we have these drugs that are very effective at treating pain. All of which is true. Right. Mm -hmm. But they just lost sight of the fact that these drugs are also extraordinarily dangerous and and they were sincere in that. And and it's interesting, too, in that a lot of these doctors who were in this movement came out of hospice care and and hospice. Why not give people, you know, why not people drug people out of their mind? They're going to die before they'd have to kick the addiction anyway. Um, But the problem with that is that you, you can't generalize that to some 30 year old construction worker comes in with a bad back. Right. And say, here's a 90 supply, 90 day supply of oxy.
2: So one of the things that people have been talking about um, recently about the whole epidemic is that, you know, yeah, while it may be true that uh, that disproportionately speaking, you know, the you know, the the person that that is affected by this crisis, you know, is white. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. It's male, but increasingly female, I would say. But white male, Mm -hmm. um, work like you know, high school education, and we also think of them as living in the Midwest, right? Or in these non-urban areas so what's interesting
1: is the the medical story basically starts in the rural parts of the and rust belt parts of the east coast and works its way west and the Uh black tar story starts on the west coast in fact it starts in my old neighborhood i grew up in canoga park california and that's where the Jalisco Hmm. boys made their beachhead although i don't remember you know people doing heroin um but uh, the, and then when they met in, say, Ohio, that's where things got really terrible. But, you know, this, the pill popping started in, um, you know, kind of the rural Rust Belt parts of the east and then moved its way. Away. Basically, the, the TV show Justified as a documentary. You know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's sociologically accurate.
2: Well, so my so what I so what I was going to say is, you know, part of the conversation right now is mm-hmm. people saying that may be the case, but they're not the only people one's affected by the opioid crisis. And, Mm -hmm. and it seems as though, um, you know, people actually have this idea, there's this ideal type, right, I would say, of the person who is affected by the crisis. And when you have that ideal type in your head, it causes you to neglect all of the other people Mm. Who don't fit that description, um, who are also suffering from the crisis. So sure. I remember,
0: Leslie. They're not. Nobody's what? doing anything here about that crisis. Like nobody's. It's all like, it, it, like I, I, at I,
2: the local that. level. I at mean, the local level. They are. they
0: uh, the only thing that I like. I I know they. My community is really going on about how they're mad that the government's spending too much on this stuff. To save their lives if they overdose, but my yeah. like my understanding is that uh, the w- people with health insurance are the only ones who have a a good crack at any type of treatment, and I know there are like nonprofits or whatever, but like it's bonkers. In my from what I'm gathering, and I've spoken with a few doctors in Canada, they just. They are it's like they're just they're treating opioid addicts as sort of chronic drug, you know, drug addict cases, and they're trying to taper them down. But it has to happen slowly with behavioral modification in the Mm -hmm. States. What they do is they just cut off the pill thing. They gave everybody pills and they were like, whoa, this is bad. Now, nobody gets pills. Or I mean, uh, you don't get as many pills, and then everybody went to tar after that. But I mean, I get that there's a, a race or, or fentanyl, and fentanyl is yeah.
1: what's really dangerous. Yeah,
2: but like it's that, not just that it's a race element; it's also this urban-rural split. I would say this this like middle versus coast split, uh, and you know, so there's all so there's all this stuff that I think conveniently. Uh, conveniently lends itself to certain political narratives, um, number one, but also number two, and I think I mentioned this on an earlier episode, Mm. right? I kind of feel like every 10 to 15 years, you know, uh, an epidemiologist or an MD will come out with a study that says, oh my God, we totally undertreat the pain of people of color, Uh (laughs) right? Um, we assume that, you know, we assume that they don't need it, that they can tolerate pain like better. Their skin is thicker. Like there are all of these theories about why, um, these, like, like my, like black and brown people are supposedly better able to tolerate pain. And I and so there was one of these studies that came out, I want to say two years ago and I remember, like, listening to listening to this on the radio, and one of the people on the show said, "Well, one of the upsides of this, you know, for Black people is that, well, you know, uh, because they were less likely to be prescribed opiates, like, you know, they're not victims of the opiate crisis." And I, you know, and I get it, like, like they're not as, but I mean, they are parts of the Bronx that are like decimated first right? of all I,
0: I find that to be such a ridiculous argument because the only reason that these people aren't being affected by opiate addiction is because they were denied healthcare services <laughs> like in the past <laughs> generation and you're like yeah see you guys we didn't give you health care but like there's an upside to it yeah it's glass glass half
2: full or glass half empty how you want to look at this
0: that's like that's like imagine like an abusive spouse beats their spouse and then the spouse runs away and becomes a super famous singer and they're like yeah, like I'm thinking of uh, Tina Turner and Ike Turner. I was You're just like, gonna oh, say it.
1: that sounds like a yeah, lot of. Uh, that's uh, what movie. I was thinking. Uh, what's <laughs> all i got to do with it?
0: Yeah, and that's like yeah. saying, "See, <laughs> Tina, wasn't it great that Ike was beating you? Because ultimately, he ended up a star. It's like don't well, well, it's interesting. That like, into it, a
1: favor, it's, it's, you, you keep <laughs> saying uh, medical, but one of the interesting things is that the uh, the Jalisco boys refused to sell to black customers too. Um, mm-hmm. oh. And uh, Quinones, you know, who talked to all of them, said that basically. They they're convinced that um, the black heroin market is more violent than the white heroin market, and mm-hmm. they feel they, they suspect that if they sell to um, black customers, they're more vulnerable to armed robbery. So you know, both from the medical side and from the uh, street market side, um, both types of um, you know new models of opiate distribution have been uh you know for not necessarily the greatest motives have left uh blacks less uh, involved less vulnerable so
2: discrimination open. can be protective
1: well if it if it's if it's discrimination in the provision of poison yes
2: <laughs> yeah you know? no i i i know i totally get it
0: yeah. Can I, uh, can I, it, it, it sounds like it's a completely different topic, but there, yeah. there's a link yeah. and the link is fear of black neighborhoods. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Cause it's like, it's really odd that like Mexican heroin dealers would be like, well, I don't want to go to the black neighborhood. I heard it's dangerous <laughs> there, which to me is like insane. But also uh, 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 one thing that I'm beginning to think about, you know, the how, uh, how housing costs are really, a stress in the northeast and out in the west coast probably even more so uh-huh. uh, and uh, i was looking at sort of property in the suburbs of new york city and one thing that i really noticed was like even wealthy black neighborhoods like if even if they're wealthy they i i get the sense that there's like a, a price discount and it means oh that, there like, totally is yeah and it means that like you have like i'm wondering how much of this housing is how much how much housing and it's not all of this housing cost problem is rooted in like people's irrational fears of black neighborhoods i'm not saying poor neighborhoods i'm not saying crime ridden neighborhoods i'm saying black independent of those factors like i live in a town where the uh black neighborhood is physically segregated like there's a train track and whatever, and I noticed there's limited access points. I'm not an expert in this stuff, so maybe I'm out to lunch. But that's what I see. No,
1: no. My understanding and- is that perceptions of neighborhoods are more driven by race than they are by, you know, signs of visible disorder or objective crime rates or anything like that. Oh well, yeah,
2: no, for sure, right? So I, I think, I think we may have talked about this before. We ha- yeah. may have had this discussion before, but there's that Emerson at all study that was done. I wish I could remember what year, but it was. You know, it, like I think I think it's going on two decades now, right, mm-hmm. where they did, you know, kind of like that phone survey kind of field experiment where, you know, they basically asked people, you know, they they talked to people over the phone and they said, imagine that you're looking for a house. You have two kids who are school aged. Right. Um, and here you are. And they're like, the house is within your price point. Yeah. You know, it's a beautiful house. The Mm -hmm. property values are high. The quality of the neighborhood school is very high. Right. Everything's good. Right. Mm -hmm. And the one and crime is low. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the one thing they did was they changed the racial makeup the racial and slash ethnic makeup of the classroom. I mean, uh-huh. the classroom, geez. No, but, the but, you can that, but
1: it's a good slip, right? Because you see the same effect yeah. in people's evaluation of sure. school quality.
2: No, exactly. And what they found was that they were like, dude, in that case, it didn't matter how Asian a neighborhood was because all of the respondents were white. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter mm-hmm. how Asian the neighborhood was. Didn't matter how Latino the neighborhood was. But, right, I think it was once a neighborhood got beyond, I think it it may, I can't remember, it may have been beyond 10%.
0: Yeah, I was going to guess something low.
2: Yeah, then people were like, whoa. And and I think that basically what, what this finding tells you is that regardless of whether or not, I mean, they were basically trying to figure out, look, you know, people have these ideas, right? And so is it because, like, you know race acts as a proxy for all of these other things well we're going to tell people you know what it's not a proxy like we're going to give you all the information so you don't have to use race as a proxy and even with that it's kind of like if it's a black neighborhood we mm-hmm. don't care what's on paper we and, and and the effect was was strongest um for people who actually had school-age kids yeah. right if you didn't have school-age kids Ah, oh, you'd be like okay
0: Mm-hmm. Right, you people. People go out. Well, what's weird in my town is that the black neighborhood is pretty well healed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the houses are all super nice, and I think those, like, you know, it's it's very weird. But still, it doesn't matter at what level. You're in North so
2: the people are black.
0: <laughs> you know what? I know something though, Leslie. I'll tell you something though. I remember when I started teaching at Temple University. Um, and I told, I lived in Harlem and then I moved to temple and Harlem was already, I mean, I lived in Harlem in 2003, 2004, Mm -hmm. so it was already kind of getting hip and stuff. You know, it was, it was pretty fun living there. Uh, it was a great neighborhood where I lived. And when I talked about coming from Harlem to the black kids at Temple, they were like, what? Did you die there? And I was like, oh, that's weird. (laughs) Like Harlem has a bad reputation, like uh, even among uh, black people in Philadelphia. So it goes to show like even like that, that perception might even be pressed on to black people themselves.
2: Oh, no, for sure. It's kind of like when people like, so for example, when a black police officer shoots an unarmed black male or female, and people mm-hmm. are like, oh well, you know, it's that's a thing that happens. So, so it's not so racism isn't a thing among police officers, and you know, if you're trained in the same in this to see black people the same way, regardless of your own race or ethnicity, mm-hmm. it amounts to the same thing.
0: Uh, no, I don't know. I I like that's why I like Queens. I feel Queens is pretty where there's no, I feel like there, I mean, this is a white person talking. So whenever I'm like, well, I'm very comfortable with race. You're always like, "Uh." Well, what do I like? <laughs> uh but I, I find one thing that I love about Queens is like, there's no dominant group that you can see. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it, it makes race, even in my own subjective experience feel like more of a non-factor, you know, when, it, when it's all, when it's uh, a bunch of different stuff, then it's just, you know, it doesn't seem like a huge factor. Whereas I felt race was a much bigger thing in Philly, where there was a higher proportion of blacks, but there wasn't the the diversity where everybody gets soaks in. So I don't it's know. too
1: bad ah. Donnell's not here because I remember back when we were in grad school, he he told me that um, the kind of multiracial nature, as compared to biracial nature of you know current American race, changes the nature of segregation. And that white people in particular feel differently about neighborhoods if they're, uh, you know, they, they basically, they, they think differently. They don't necessarily think about what percentage is the neighborhood white. They think more in terms of is it, what percentage is it black? But that means that you can have uh, more of a stable equilibrium at integration with the multiracial conception than you could back when it was just the two races.
2: Although one of the things I, I, I'm, I'm happy you mentioned Queens, Joe, mm-hmm. because... Uh, I mean, there are neighborhoods in Queens that are totally diverse, and then you realize there are no Black people there, right? So, Um, I I mean, it's crazy. And you're just like, how is it possible that there is a space for seemingly every type of person in this neighborhood except there are no people like this, right? And I mean, and I think, um, and, and and you can see that in... "Quote unquote diverse neighborhoods all around the country, right? Um, and I think I, I think it goes to um, I don't know, like I think this country, like like kind of anti blackness, whether it's conscious or subconscious, what have you. I think it still runs deep in this country.
0: Oh, it's plain as day. I, to I'm,
1: my mind. I'm glad you mentioned Queens because it reminds me to watch Coming to America again.
0: <laughs>
2: and on that, that was, note...
0: <laughs> I, I just want to say uh what's his name the dad yeah he he was he in jamaica Oh, mcdowell's well, yeah, yeah <laughs> mcdowell's yeah and he was like it's funny like now i know the neighborhood they yeah. don't look like that yeah but uh queens is cool oh there was something that i wanted to argue with you about mm-hmm. it was about the doctors um and it's like oh it was about how uh, even though they never lost sight of the fact that opiates were addictive, mm-hmm. what happened was addictivity got reframed, right? It was like the, it's like there's a, a cost-benefit and that the, where you stand is influenced by a lot of social pressures. And it was like... Oh, see, the, I disagree with
1: that because it became conventional wisdom at a certain point that the addiction rate for opiates is 1%. It's actually more like 20%, but they, but there was a study that showed 1% and then people forgot that that study occurred under very specific circumstances. And so basically for inpatients in the seventies, the addiction rate was 1%, but, um, among people so in the 70s you only got opiates inpatient and you only got them for a few days when you were recovering from surgery and only one percent of people got addicted under those circumstances that's not going to generalize if you have people who are outpatient and getting 60 day packs of oxy
0: okay so that is yes i understand that
1: almost it's something like 15 or 20 percent of people get addicted
0: okay but that line of reasoning is a very social scientist's way of thinking about things generalizability i i understand but like so for example like uh, i'm thinking more personal discussions i've had now it's a different context it's obviously an idiosyncratic sample Mm -hmm. but i will say that the doctors that i have spoken to their grasp of science and statistics is much weaker than ours yeah and a lot of them anecdotally reason through their work and like they have heuristics and stuff but they're they're analytical minds like you don't have to be analytical to be a doctor mm-hmm. it takes a it takes a bunch of skill sets interestingly some of them are like steady hand mm-hmm. like in the lab so it's scientific like that some of it is like observational or human management there's a whole Repertoire skills. And the doctors that I talk to reason through it like this. They're like, well, we knew that they were addictive, but we felt like that we were incurring a cost, like that the downside of potential addiction, that we had been misestimating the real harm of pain. Like pain had been constructed into, reconstructed into being a disease in and of itself. And when I talk to doctors, some of them speak about it as a past belief state that they yeah. held. Oh,
1: I, I think that's absolutely and then, true. And Kinones talks a lot about that. So he talks about like, oh yeah. um, pain became an indicator that was added to medical charts. So like right alongside yeah. your blood pressure and that kind of shit, it, it would have, uh, you know, your pain rating, and pain became something that like. Uh, doctors would be evaluated on and that hospitals would check as like a post And like, you know, was the doctor nice to you? Did the doctor ask your questions? Was the doctor concerned with your pain? So pain became taken very seriously in the 1990s um, as an indicator.
0: My my understanding is pain was construed as a form of illness itself, not a symptom of an underlying illness. Like people were starting to say, you got to treat. No, no, that's pretty much
1: true. And, 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 yeah. and talks about that a lot, but he says, but the, so the, I don't know, there's two sides to this. One is taking pain more seriously and the other is taking addiction less seriously. And it's like, even if you mm-hmm. thought pain was a serious problem and a disease in of itself and things like that, if you, if I told you that 15% of your patients who you treat for pain will end up with a life altering addiction that yeah. turns them into the kind of people who steal their children's Christmas presents to sell for dope. Mm-hmm. then you would say it's better off that they still stay in pain. But if I yeah. tell you what percent then you'd say I'm going to give them the pills.
2: Yeah, and Joe, I think um I so I think that that part of what's going on here with that 1% number is that the people who were trying to who were trying to push the pills and convince doctors that you know what like this is a no-brainer they're Mm -hmm. quoting the 1% number, right? And then there are doctors who are like, I I thought I knew better than this, right?
0: Well, they're like, well, this is scientific. I guess it's 1%. Yeah, Yeah." just from
2: observation, I thought I'm pretty sure it's higher than this, but if you're telling me it's 1% and I'm getting, you know, from on high that this is what I need to be doing. And then at the same time, you have new cohorts of of medical students being trained in medical school, like around that one percent number. Yeah. Right? What do you think they're gonna do when they leave medical school?
1: And the interesting thing is that one percent became just like an accepted fact and people knew the citation, but nobody bothered to look it up and read it. The mm-hmm. actual citation is a one paragraph letter to the editor, I think of Jammer uh uh, which journal was it? New England, yeah, in New of England Journal of Medicine. Yeah. Yeah. So journal it was a one paragraph letter to the editor in New England Journal of Medicine saying, we checked the inpatient records and only 1% of people who were treated inpatient with opiates later became addicted among people who didn't have a prior addiction. That was it. Yep. And if you read the actual article, you'll say, oh, well, this should in general. And you think like a social scientist wh- where, you know, you think about problems like generalizability, you'd say, well, of course this isn't mm-hmm. going to generalize to you know, I give people a 60-day supply of OxyContin and send them on his way. Um, but, you know, people just took the number for granted, and that that statistic appeared in medical textbooks. It appeared in pharmaceutical detailing literature where, you know, if you're a pharmaceutical detailer and you're trying to convince doctors to prescribe Oxy, you just have in your PowerPoint deck 1%, and you don't say 1% of people treated inpatient in the 1970s. You just say 1%. <laughs> And that became like the mantra was 1%. And 1% is acceptable if pain is a serious problem. But 15% or 20%, which is the real number, is not.
0: A lot lot of those docs writing those scripts, they were trained before evidence-based medicine was even a thing. Like evidence-based medicine, I think, is like an 80s or 90s thing, if I'm not mistaken. Like a lot of docs who are writing those scripts, like they just took the – the reps were added, no, but they were going on evidence. It's just the evidence was bad because it was
1: ba- it was basically an out of sample generalization.
0: You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit the annexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury. And Liseth Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.